Hey everyone, welcome to the Being Giant Show. I'm one of your hosts, Rochelle Brenna, and this is a podcast for academics by academics. This week, my guest is Dr. Monica Cox. Dr. Cox is a professor in the Department of Engineering Education at The Ohio State University and is a 2020 fellow of the American Society for Engineering Education. She is also one of the co-founders of Black in Engineering and is the CEO of Steminit. In the episode, you'll hear her talk about her undergraduate experience at Spelman, how the things that she's been passionate about have guided her throughout her career, and how she's gone about becoming a change agent committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. As always, we hope that you guys enjoy the episode. Well, hello, Dr. Cox. How are you? Hi, great. Thanks. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me. I'm super excited to talk about so many things. You are an impressive individual. You are doing so many uh, things for your community. And I'm really excited to kind of just like, you know, put that together so that our listeners can, you know, benefit from, from your story. Yeah. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, First things first, why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about the things that you're doing right now? Yeah, so I am a professor of engineering education, um, and I am also a business owner. Um, So I balance um, my research in engineering education with um, some of the interests that I have with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just really trying to make the world a better place. So that's a high-level overview. (laughs) Wait. You said you're a business owner and at the same time, you know, you are a full-time professor and you're doing research. How do you balance these two combinations? I don't even know if there's a balance <laughs> that much. Um, I think that I I have a really good team who helps me um, with some of the work and I was not able to do this really well um, just because I was an administrator before I became um, this before I launched into the new phase of my business. And as an administrator, I mean, I really had to be on like in my, in my career, um, in my job really. And so it's just, it's delegation. It's really having people around you who support you and believe in your mission. And uh, I work a lot in the evenings and on the weekends. So that's the thing. I do work like seven days a week to either do my business or my day job. I understand. It's like you, you got to put in, you have to find the time, right? You have to put in the hours. Well, we'll, I guess we'll, as this interview goes on, we'll get a little bit more into what you're doing for your business. But I know that you like early on in, you know, in the, at the start of your academic career, you went to Spelman and yeah. you majored in math. So I was wondering, could you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah. So when you think about math, or at least when I thought about majoring in math, I just pretty much thought about calculus or pre-algebra, you know, all the things that you think about when you're in K-12. So math to me was a way to bridge some of the interests that I had with um, with engineering, but I also had a scholarship. and so. Um, 
I just knew, I learned over time that I was more interested in applied mathematics than I was theoretical mathematics, which is more like the proving versus actually the application. And I think that was really a great bridge for me as I, as I moved into my master's degree in industrial engineering. So math was there to help me think. You know, when people think, like, what can you do with a math major? Math, um, yeah, like a math major, you can do anything. You know, I know people who've gone into law, people who are like me who've gone into engineering, and then I moved into education, and engineering education. You know, now I'm a businesswoman. Like, math is just about the analytics, it's about problem solving and about being logical and knowing how to put pieces together. Hmm. Did you naturally gravitate towards math, or was there somewhat of a mentor in your life, you know? when you were coming out of high school or throughout high school that helped guide you towards making that decision and majoring in math? Yeah, I was I was good in a lot of things. I enjoyed creativity and writing. Um, it's just that I, I was pretty good at math as well. And, uh, you know, full transparency, I thought about where the money was, not just with a career, but also uh, people were looking for women in mathematics and black women in mathematics. And so um, I went to school debt free. And when a scholarship was given to me, um, I was like, yeah, I'll explore this because I can do it. And if I want to do something else later in life, then I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But if someone thinks that I have the ability to do this work, then let's start out here in this career path and let me just learn. Okay. Okay. That's what's up. Now, while you were at Spelman, me personally, I think at this point in my academic career, I just finished my master's and stuff and kind of looking back, you know, I realize in my experience right now that I don't really know a lot of black professionals. And I think that's largely due to the school that I went to, the major that I majored in and the kind of work that I'm doing now. So in looking back, I've often thought, okay, what would it would have been like for me personally had I gone to an HBCU? So I guess my question for you is, how was that experience like at Spelman, you know, person to be around people who look like you, but then at the same time to be able to major in something that, you know, a lot of people who look like us don't really do? Um, you know, it was so empowering. It was wonderful to be around people who... Um, who were like-minded, but different at the same time. And I often talk about the power of cohort experiences, particularly being around, um, you know, women who are driven in the same way that you are. So I was in a cohort of 13 women who, um, you know, entered school um, from from everywhere around the country. And now those women, I think it, it varies, but many of them stayed in engineering or in STEM, but one is a patent attorney, three of us are professors, one is a principal, another is a plastic surgeon. Um, you know, so just to encourage each other is amazing. And so um, there was that part, the student part, 
But also from the professor part, we had really powerful mentors who were there. Um, so one of my major mentors was Dr. Etta Faulkner, who was one of the first Black women to get a PhD in mathematics in the U.S. So she, like people talk about imposter syndrome a lot, but Dr. Faulkner pulled me in her office my senior year and told me that I always underestimated, underestimated myself and I needed to move on and get like this this master's degree in engineering and so it was someone who saw me who saw my ability and who had the the foresight to say monica you can be more than what your eyes can see at this moment like that's what spellman was about like just encouragement rigor and and just empowerment as a black woman mm-hmm. okay wow that's amazing that just sounds it sounds it sounds like a hug you know, like at every step of, you know, going through that experience, having someone who's there to, you know, look out for you and stuff. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, now, I know, you know, during your time at Spelman, you did intern with uh, NASA at one of the NASA uh, facilities. Was yes. it Marsh, uh, Marshall's uh, Flight Center? Yes. Flight Center. Right, right. So did you, you intern? like they're all throughout your time at Spelman or was it kind of just like a couple summers? So I interned five summers and um, NASA co, I guess they, I had a NASA fellowship, a NASA fellowship for graduate education and a scholarship for undergraduate education. So NASA pretty much supported uh, my math degrees and my industrial engineering degrees. And I remember getting a stipend. And so I did some calculations. NASA paid really, really well. And you know how people are talking about like the $15 minimum wage right now. I think like I started the summer of 95 and maybe by the time I ended, sometimes sometime within that four to five year period, I calculated that I was making like $15 an hour then. So, you know, it was it was really eye-opening to see the opportunities that were available for me, but also just the need to have women and women of color in science and, and to really inform how experiments were done and the culture. Um, like, I, it was really great. And, and, you know, if you've seen Hidden Figures, for example, you know, right. you see how how that culture was back in the day. And so to somehow be there and to have a seat at a table and or to inform something that was happening in that organization, you know, that was that was potentially exciting. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you were a NASA fellow. How did that opportunity come about? Let's see. So as an undergrad, I just applied to Spelman and Spelman had a partnership with NASA. So I think that they had some type of internal um, selection process. And I, um, I decided to, um, to apply. And and I just remember getting the call. Um, I think I may have been in my room or I got the phone call or something, but I was told that I was a NASA fellow. I mean, a NASA scholar, they called it Women in Science and Engineering Program. So WISE, I was a WISE scholar. And I'd been selected for for, um, for Florida, for Orlando, which was um, Cape Canaveral, and also for Huntsville. 
So I'd have a chance to go either way. And I chose Huntsville because I lived in Alabama. And, um, you know, it was it was really um, it was humbling because I pretty much had said from the time I was in high school, if I would not go to any university that did not offer me a full scholarship. So it took time for me to hear from Spelman. And I think I accepted I um I accepted a scholarship at Florida AM University. So that was mm-hmm. so I was ready. Like I got three scholarships. I only applied to HBCUs, Tuskegee, Florida, AM, and Spelman. So I got my full scholarship um for sure to Florida AM and I was so ready to go. But Spelman called at the last minute and that was it. Um but looking at the master's level. Um, that was a gym fellowship, so graduate education for minorities fellowship. And then Dr. Faulkner um, just told me about that fellowship. And that's where I decided to to pursue my master's. Mm. As well. okay. okay. So essentially, so I, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you got the call from Spellman, you know, I guess they kind of had, they figured out how to package these like different opportunities for you. So before you, I guess, accepted um, their offer, did you already know about the NASA uh, scholar program, or was did that something? Was that something that came afterwards? I feel that it came afterward because let me tell you, I came from rural Alabama, and when I didn't even know much about NASA, you know how there are people who are exposed to things, and and you know that there are like these installations all across the country. I didn't even know that, you know, to me, NASA was the launch, you know, or maybe it was astronaut training. And so to know that across the country, there were so many different centers, like that's the thing that got me. So I didn't even know. And when they're like, oh, you can go to the one in Alabama and Alabama, all I knew was space camp. <laughs> like mm. I didn't really, I didn't see the behind the scenes of, you know, Redstone Arsenal, or I didn't know that each installation had its own thing. Like if you look at um, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they're out there, you know, working with that. Marshall was really there for like rockets. And, you know, there's one in, um, you know, like Mississippi and Langley and Goddard. And, you know, it's just an elaborate system. But I had no idea. Like I said, I was from the country. I didn't know engineers. I didn't know people with PhDs. I didn't know rockets. (laughs) Yeah, oh. I knew it was a well, scholarship. <laughs> and I was <laughs> <that later. laughs> yeah. Well, being after so so you you entered there for five summers. I guess what made you decide to not continue along the path of you know rockets and stuff, and to go off and go and do industrial engineering and stuff. What what kind of informed that decision for you? You'll see. You have me thinking like, you know, what? I'm trying to go back to like the heart of that moment and and what it was. Um, I don't know if it was if it was me just being an intern or if it was something else, but I felt working at NASA was kind of boring. And let me unpack that because I don't want people to look at the episode and be like, oh, my gosh, you know, she's anti-NASA. I'm not anti-NASA at all. It's just. When I think about like my personality, when I think about my interests, like I am very 
human focused. I'm very people focused. And that caused me to go into education. So I, I felt that I want my, the questions that I wanted to answer were very much focused on the people. It always came back to the people. And I could have done that through industrial engineering or human factors engineering, but I started caring more about the social aspects of people, you know, so kind of, um, you know, getting a little bit into sociology, getting into the psychology of people. And that's what translate, that's what transitioned me to this new space of, um, of just kind of getting out of engineering. Mm -hmm. My interest was my passion. My passion has always driven me to go to that next place. And I think mm -hmm. that's what I listen to. Even now, I listen to my passions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like, so you weren't afraid to go ahead and like make that transition, you know, away from like, you know, the super technical work and stuff. I wasn't. And I'm glad that you're asking me this because it's even allowing me to reflect on myself now as a person. I, yeah, you're right. I've never been afraid to do it. Like I feel it's almost like you can call it intuition. You can call it, you know, something else, but I feel led. Like I know when there are moments for me to transition and it's because my mind just kind of keeps going to that spot. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you're supposed to focus, but go to that spot. And I don't mean this in a way that's very, um, that's very loose or chaotic. I mean it from a perspective of um, this problem is here and I need to keep coming back to it. And so I'll give mm -hmm. you even an example now of what that looks like. Cause I feel like I'm, I'm kind of halfway teaching at the same time that I'm sharing my story. Um, you know, I was, I was a department chair and, you know, I've always kind of felt like my next move in life was to go to an administrative space. Um, so, you know, be a dean, be a provost, be a president. And as I was doing this, I kept seeing that there were these issues um, affecting Black women in the academy. So, you know, it's like, okay, Monica, focus on the budget part of your department. But, oh, here's another Black woman who got hurt. Or, oh, here's a situation that I'm experiencing. And so I'm being drawn to this space now where the issues come back to, why are Black women suffering in the academy? Why are these very public inequities happening? And that's like my new thing. That's how I develop research studies. That's how I've really focused on aspects of my business. I feel like that's even something that's maybe possibly connected me to you, but that's my thing. And so I'm slowly going into this space because I see a need and I feel that I have the skills and the ability to somehow um, problem solve. Getting back to math, remember I told you about the math, I had the ability to problem solve in ways that organizations have not come up with solutions to help Black women. Mm -hmm. Now, as you're doing your master's in industrial engineering, is that when you really started to see some of these issues, you know, that Black women were facing and stuff? And is that what kind of led you to do your PhD in leadership and policy? It did um, a little bit. You know what? I'm always this person. I'm, I'm keenly aware of my surroundings. I've always been this person. Like you put me in a classroom and yeah, I kind of care about the content, <laughs> but I want to know about my classmates. You know, I was always that one who's like, 
Ooh, what's your background? And, you know, when I was in my master's degree, you know, we had people who were from Germany and I remember Venezuela, China, et cetera. And we had our, our seminar every week. And I just remembered, you know, I would talk to the professor and I'm like, why don't we have like an international presentation at the end of the seminar so we can learn about each other and learn about different cultures and build community. And so I'm all about building community. And I just realized it's a common theme. And so even as an adult, I mean, like, how do I say this? As you grow over your career, you notice that there are certain things about you. It's not just about like the technical part, but it's just like, huh, I'm really good at motivating people. I'm really good at creating community. And so those things, like regardless of math, engineering or whatever, always happen. And I realized as an industrial engineer, I wanted to know more about like why there weren't more people like me and what were the dynamics and you know how can we make the environment better so those questions led me to the next thing so you i hopefully you'll see my pattern and what i figured out for my life where it's it's a great risk to do work where there is no blueprint and i, and I came to this realization with a reflection um and i think i wrote this as like an instagram post one day and I was just like, you know what? Um, you know, I was always looking for a blueprint, but maybe I am the blueprint. And then you just have to rest in that. Like that is one of those aha moments in life of like, who I'm the blueprint. It sounds cocky. It sounds scary. It sounds, it sounds like a lot when you say it in your, you know, you, you hear it. I'm the blueprint. Like, what? Right. Are you? That's ego. That's ego. But right. it's not, though. And I feel that. You're able to carve new opportunities for yourself when you're not afraid to be the blueprint. Like that'll preach. I know that'll preach all day. You know, be the blueprint. I mean, that's, no, that's, that's very powerful. That's no, that's yeah. a very powerful. I mean, even as you said it now, and me thinking about some of the things that I'm trying to do now, I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know. I've always been trying to find the blueprint, and that's something that you know to inform me. I'm always trying to find that blueprint to inform me on the the next thing that I should do to get me yeah. to where I'm trying to be. And yeah. I get frustrated when I can't find it because I'm like, man, this thing doesn't exist. And then now I'm kind of in this place where I'm like, oh man, no, I, I have to, I have to figure, I have to create this plan and I can't be afraid to try out new things and to talk to other people about the things that I'm interested in and be like, hey, this is me. This is what I look like. This is what I'm interested in. And I'm going to get here regardless of, you know, whether, whether if you like it or not, if you think it's a bad idea or not, like, this is what I'm going to do. And like, you know, be confident in, in that space, which is really, it's really interesting to me, though, because at the start of this interview, you mentioned how as you were starting your undergraduate journey, you were talking about how um, for you it was all about the money, you know, where the money was. But it kind of seems as though, you know, so you, you, you did your undergrad in math and then you did your master's in industrial engineering and stuff. I would imagine that there's plenty of opportunities for you to go off into industry and work for, you know, a Fortune 500 company and make, you know, a lot of money as opposed to just sticking with the academic route. So yeah. at, at some point, you know, would you say that it became less about the money and it was more about, hey, this is me. These are the things that I'm passionate about. And this is where I see I can make a difference. 
you know, were you- yeah, it was about influence. You know what? Like, I, that, like you're helping me to really reflect. But at some point, it was less about money and more about influence. And I think when you think about going into these spaces and being a first earn only, there is so much power there. And it's the trailblazing power. It's the blueprint power that I tell you about. Like the ability to transform systems in ways that no one has ever been able to do before. Like there is something to that that is that is just um, very fulfilling to me. And, you know, I think more so than the money, I'm about purpose. And I read a lot about purpose. I am, I don't want to say I'm obsessed, but it's just one of my core things. It's something I talk about all the time. And there's this author who I've read, um, he was a Christian author. He passed away. His name is um, Dr. Miles Monroe, but he talked about um, potential and purpose. And he says, and he said that like, when you look at a cemetery, all of that, like there's so much wealth in the cemetery because there were people who did not fulfill their purpose. There were books that were never written. There were songs that were never composed. Um, and it's because they died with their purpose. And I always think about that, you know, like that is the thing that gets me every day. It's not about money for me. It's about purpose. Like who am I supposed to influence? And he also talked about this concept of dying empty. And so often we think about, you know, dying young or dying old or like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm thinking about, I want to live to be 80, but you want to live to fulfill the purpose that you have on earth. And so it's it's my whole deep thing where I think about us as finite beings. And if you are given only so much time, if you are given one life to live, if this is the only chance that you have to do what you're supposed to do in life, what are you doing in a way that, yes, kind of shows you were here, but that's kind of egotistical, but it's 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 pouring out everything that you have into people in ways that help them, but also help future generations. And so legacy is something I always talk about as well with just, um, it's bigger than we are. You know, like I I feel like my goal, it sounds super deep, but my goal is this. And when I talked about like creating a coaching business and moving forward, the training and the things that I want to help people with, it comes back to this. It comes back to living your purpose. It comes back to getting everything out of you so that when you take your last breath and when you are gone, people said this person fulfilled, you know, her purpose on this earth. You may not have liked her because because life is not about being liked. It's not about being popular. It's about being purposeful. I know that'll preach too. I felt that one. It's no, cool. I did. No, no, no. You kind of have me on the verge. You know, my eyes are a little moist here. Wow, no, super powerful. Um, no, and I think, I mean, you know, I've looked into you for for a little while now, and you know, I'm following you on Twitter. You know, it's interesting that you, you know, you talk about the concept of influence and stuff, and you definitely do have, you know. You do have influence. You do have a significant following and and stuff, which I think serves as a really cool way to kind of transition into some of the the, the stuff that occurred last year, specifically regarding the uh, George Floyd murder and stuff and some of the, I guess, the the work 
and opportunities that came out of that to speak upon issues yeah in you know the the academic uh world because i can speak for myself me personally um after that happened i had a bunch of my friends from college reaching out to me apologizing saying that i'm so sorry this kind of third and for me i think it kind of put me in a very awkward position because i had never really been put in a situation where i had to think about you know the color of my skin Mm-hmm. And academic spaces only because, again, because of what I studied, because of the school that I went to, I was usually either one or t- one of, you know, of a few black kids or maybe the, the one black kid in, you know, that classroom and stuff. So for me, it was kind of awkward, but it also allowed me to really think about, hey, what has that journey, you know, what was that like for me, you know, mm-hmm. is, is does that help inform why I'm frustrated with where I am currently in my life and try to transition to where I'm trying to, you know, get to, you know, does that play a role? And after I kind of sat there and I thought about it, I would very much say, yes, it has, because had I had people who looked like me, who were, who understood the context of me, because, you know, when you grow up black and American and stuff, there is, a situation that you are born in. There is this concept of generational trauma that does get passed down to you in a way that other, you know, other people of other, you know, racial backgrounds, it doesn't necessarily happen. Yeah. So given all these things that happened last year, I know that one of the things that came out of, you know, of the summer was this concept of black in engineering, but also black in other uh, disciplines as well. And I know that you've been heavily involved with the Black and Engineering uh, community. If correct me if I'm wrong, but you are one of the co-founders, correct? I am. I am. Yes. Okay. So why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about how that came about, and given, especially given the fact that you know you are you know a full-time professor yeah. at you know the Ohio State you know University. Yeah. A lot of things happened. So it's funny because when it happened, like my appointment as department chair ended in June. So June 1st. So George Floyd was murdered March 25th. And so I had a couple of months. I mean, May, I'm sorry, May May 25th. And so I had a couple of months where I, in the summer where I was just out of the office and I was just like, this is overwhelming. Let me figure out what to do to, you know, make this, to do something. You know, I was like, I need to think about this. I need to process. I really like, this is a lot. It was the pandemic. It was, you know, what happened to me, you know, and with me personally on my job, it was the summer. It was just everything. Right. And and I feel, and I remembered sitting like right here, like literally I was on a call with, um, a couple of other black women and we were working on a project and, you know, we were trying to focus on the project. It was a Friday afternoon and we couldn't concentrate. And we, we took time to just talk and to just say, like, what is this? What is happening? Like, we need to do something because this is appalling. And before that, there was the black and the ivory hashtag, you know, everybody opened up, you know, it was one of those like Pandora's box um, where everybody was saying, this is what's happening to us. 
And it was just atrocious. People were like, are you what? Like, you know, people are doing this. This is happening. And so it was just like everybody getting everything out. So we called um, Raheem Bea, who is now the dean of engineering at Georgia Tech, which is so funny. And he um, had a list. He was he was a facilitator of a list of black professionals through this network. And we're like, could we send something out through this listserv to call a meeting the following week? And we did that and 60 something people showed up and we were just like, what are we going to do? And I watched this YouTube video that talked about social movements and we pretty much knew we wanted it to be a social justice movement. And remember, so this is how everything connects. I taught leadership policy and organizations. So one of my big thing was change, organizational change. And one of the, um, one of the references that I had people talk talk about and learn about was movements. What does it mean to have a movement? So I just remembered, I'm like, there's literature in this space. And this is like an organizational framework. And so we really focused on making sure that we had the messaging. We had the media. You have to connect back to policy. Like all those things were the things that fra- that we framed our our. Um, our movement around and people just connected to it in so many different ways. And um, it was having that structure. It was having the support and just really like being very, very intentional about the areas where we wanted to focus, but also how, how we wanted to do this. Like that was, that was really important. So it was a lot, but it was, it was amazing now that I'm looking at it and I think something else I'll say about that is it's the word risk. It was so risky. Like hindsight is twenty twenty, but oh my gosh. You know, like you don't know what the consequence is going to be. Are we going to be ostracized? Are people going to call us troublemakers? Are, are we closing doors on future opportunities because we are so loud and we're so visible and we're so radical because, you know, there are some people who probably could have done this, but they're in positions of power. You know, maybe they are deans or provosts or presidents. And I feel like the people who started it, like, gosh, we had so much to lose. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like it was oh, a no. lot. <laughs> no, not a hundred percent. I've kind of touched upon that a little bit through this podcast show and interviewing, you know, some of our like past guests where, you know, their work that, you know, they're telling, they're telling us about their graduate school experiences and, you know, the difficulties in that navigating um, their relationship with their advisors and stuff. Yeah. And as we're, you know, recording this podcast and, you know, thinking about different ways we can repack, like repackage the material to post on different platforms and stuff, we have to be mindful and how we, put certain things out there so that way the person who we've interviewed, it doesn't put them in a situation where they're compromising, you know, themselves and like, you know, they're ruining relationships with, um, you know, their academic connections and stuff. And I think that speaks volumes regarding academia, uh, academia overall, because academia does have this hush hush culture where you can't talk about anything. And therefore, when someone does get out of academia and, you know, they take the Twitter or other platforms and stuff, you know, and they're expressing their feelings, people feel as though like it's coming off as like harsh, it's coming off as like angry and stuff. But think about it, you know, you just had someone just spend, you know, maybe five, seven, 10 years through this process where 
they weren't allowed to say anything and they just had to endure mm-hmm. this situation for them to get to where they're, you know, where they want to be. So yeah. of course it's going to be like that, which is why it's important to have conversations like this conversations, such as what you just described and getting all these individuals on a call to just talk about like, Hey, here's the situation, what we're going to do about it. This is why that's important and stuff. Okay. So yeah, I, I definitely understand what you mean in terms of, in terms of risk. Yeah. May I I add a quick thing to that, though? And this is like a little bit controversial, but I feel like we need controversy. We need we need push to move things. You know, one thing that I have learned is that um, I feel like academia feels very plantation like. And that is a very um, (laughs) that's a harsh thing to say. You know, I I always hear this balance. Like when I talk to women of color or or my black women professors, you know, we talk about women, young women like you who are coming up and and wanting to maybe and follow our footsteps. And it's like, do you tell them the truth? Do you not tell them the truth? And, you know, I always tell people, you know, it is it's a system. You are in a system. And, you know, no matter how free you want to be. Um, there's a cost and, you know, people may look at me and they're like, oh my gosh, Monica, you know, you're so great on Twitter. You're doing whatever, baby, that comes with a cost and everybody is not loving me. Um, the pushback is real, but I am making a conscious decision to do that. And I need people to understand that there's a difference between being in a system and being like really radical and being in a system and saying, I know the rules. I know the pushback, but to change this system, I am going to push against certain things because it has to change. And, you know, people will often talk about my social media and I do have a coach who I work with. And, you know, I I could tell people the whole plan about the social media, but to me, social media is an archived document. I use it very strategically and I use hashtags strategically. You know, all the things that I'm doing is because I need to chronicle what's happening, but I also see it as a storytelling tool and I see it as a mentoring tool. Now, everybody didn't understand that. People were like, you know, you're just up here playing on social media. You know, you're just, you know, up here wasting your time. But now that we're in the middle of a, you know, not the middle, but we're hopefully at the end of the pandemic, um, you know, I think people are like, huh, there's something about creating this community. There's something about creating, like connecting to people like you. And it's like, huh, opportunities, business opportunities are happening as a result of this. This is where the voices are coming together. And, you know, it's it's that part. And so remember, I told you about the blueprint. I've been on social media. I've been on Twitter since 2010. And right. now there are a ton of academics who are on there. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, everybody needs to do Twitter like a, you know, like it's a CV. But I did it when it wasn't popular. I did it when people didn't, um, I didn't really have people to talk to all the time on Twitter. And now it's like, you know, the the place to be. And so my point is, understand the system really well, but be prepared if the system kicks you out. Because when you do certain things, there's going to be resistance and own up to what your boundaries are, what your non-negotiables are, like, and how much risk you are willing to take for what you say you believe. Mm -hmm. That's powerful right there. Wow. Well, in the spirit of that, right? So given that, 
you know, black specifically, in, you know, black in, in engineering, um, it's now a nonprofit, correct? Um, we're now, yes. Yeah, so not black in engineering is, is a little bit under um, the academic leadership network incorporated. So yes, it is under this nonprofit. Yes. And because we didn't want it to be connected to a single organization. It was founded um, at Georgia Tech through Georgia Tech faculty. But if we are going to be able to do this work the way we need to do the work, we as faculty, um, professionals, postdocs, et cetera, need to separate from a single institution. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, you know, you you talk about, you know, owning, you know, owning up and accepting that there is a a risk, you know, that comes with, you know, doing this work. Um, Right. What do you think? what do you think is next for you given where you are now and, you know, and all the things that have occurred over the past, you know, 12 months, what do you think is next for you? You know what? I don't know if I have like the details, but I'm going to tell you something like in a very high level way based on what I've learned. You know, I told you I used to want to be like a dean, a professor, I mean, not a professor, a dean, a provost, a president, et cetera. And what I think is universities are, what have I learned? Universities are too small. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, you know, it used to be okay to have this vision to be like, I want to work at, you know, University X. But I used to always say this. I said, you, even if you are like president or chancellor, you have to answer to the board of trustees. And if you look at what's been happening recently, um, you know, that that's come out the very thing I'm talking about, right? Like you think Mm -hmm. I'm going to go, go, go. I'm going to make all this change. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? If somebody don't want you to make change, you're not going to change anything. And I think that's like my aha moment of, you know, I I am so ambitious when it comes to leadership and organizations. And I'm like, we're going to dismantle. We're going to, you know, really just make this a place that's great for everybody. But guess what? It takes one person, one person to knock that down. One person who mm-hmm. does not like the vision, one person who is opposed to change, and it will take, you know, that person can take 15, 20, 25 years of work and knock it down. And so now my brain is thinking, okay, remember going back to math, I'm always going back to my problem solving skills. Right. How do you do this where you are really protecting people, not protecting people. Yeah, you are protecting people, but you're making change. So I'm gonna give you like a visionary thing. Okay. So once again, Mm -hmm. I'm not answering your thing specifically, but I have really thought about this. Mm -hmm. The next, the the way to really do this work is to get above the university. And what I mean is through the pandemic, we've learned the power of connectivity. So look at black and engineering, you know, you had 400 faculty, you know, or hundreds of faculty who would have been one or only in their organizations. And when you're one or only, you can only do so much, you know, it's the system, but you have to elevate, you have to take that work beyond and above the organization. That's what the power is. And so Black and engineering is an example. All the black and X's or whatever are examples of that. But I feel from a policy perspective, 
you know, we need to organize in ways that somehow now inform those organizations or we come together to share information about what's happening. And that's what you see with Twitter. All Twitter is, is um, the water cooler, the water cooler for academics. Pretty much like, let me tell you something. Don't go to this institution. Don't go over there. Don't do blah, blah, blah. They treat people like trash over there. And it's like, you know what? It's become a green book. It has become... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the, um, what is this? The whistleblower It's right. everything. You know what I mean? Everybody's like, we're about to call this out. And it's not out of a place of malice. It's a place of protection. It's a place of community. It's a place of unity. And it's that concept. It's not necessarily Twitter. It's not necessarily black and engineering, but it's elevating it where there's a sense of community and collective power to inform change. So, mm. Asking, so telling me, you asked me where I am, I'm in that mindset. My mindset is, yeah, you know, I work for an organization. It's cool. I can do certain things in the organization. Maybe somebody listen to me. Maybe somebody won't. Maybe somebody likes my, my, my research. Maybe they don't. But you know what? It's about my business. It's mm -hmm. about the nonprofit. It's about the community. It's about every place where... I can help empower people who can now go and dismantle oppression. That's it. That's what I do. So whatever job that is, <laughs> you know, I don't know, you know, and does it pay? I don't really know if it pays any money, but I feel like even getting back to what I told you earlier, mm -hmm. you know, how do I, how do I find my moves? How do I make my moves when there's not a blueprint? What I'm saying it's not a blueprint, but you know what? In my business, I have this thing I call the trajectory and it's what I see. It's my, it's my thing of, I need academics to come together. I need like-minded people to come together and I'm calling it the trajectory. I'm slowly but surely building something, but as I'm forming it, let me let me collect people. Like one of my mm -hmm. post one of my um grad students, former grad students said I'm a people collector. And I am. You know what? It's like some people collect art. I collect people because I think people are very interesting. And but but you see we're making this connection again, right? I told you right. it's not about the math. It's not about industrial engineering. I can go and major in basket weaving. It's not about that. My core is community building. And so, huh, what's my next community building? activity. And that's always connected back to my job, my business, my activism. You know, it's, it's, it's that for me. That was a long answer. And I didn't tell you anything specific, but I hope it made sense. No, I think it made sense. I mean, it, it's sometimes you don't have the, the right answer, right? Like, for example, you know, often like when people say graduate from undergrad or graduate from grad school, naturally, they're going to get a 50,000 people asking them, hey, so what are you going to do next? What's, you know, what's your next step? And sometimes a concrete answer doesn't exist. And ex instead what exists is, well, I'm here at this moment in time and this is how I feel. And based on how I feel, whatever I do next needs to resolve this feeling or, you know, you know, help with that. It needs to be, you know, the two needs to, to work well. So I think your, your answer was, uh, well said. And, Thank and I you. think I caught, the, I caught the drift for sure, 100%. Thank you. And what you'll find in like a year is like, oh, the thing she's doing was that thing that she was talking about. Just like right. when I went 
engineering education, you know, engineering education didn't exist. But and when I interviewed the person who was the chair of the committee said, it's as if I had a crystal ball and could see what the future was. It wasn't that I could see what the future was. It's just that in my in my training and my preparation and my observation of people and situations, I'm like, this is needed. And so that's also the thing that that moves me in my business. I'm looking right. to see what's needed. And, I, and so you'll always have a space when you are conscious of your surroundings, when you're conscious of environments, and it's not just, you know, your work environments, but it's like looking at society, looking at bigger pictures, like how does all of this come together? And, you know, even some um, some points that I'll give to your listeners as to like how to identify that and how to connect back to their own interests and research. You know, we are coming out of a global pandemic. You're going to have to look at some aspect of healthcare. Because look at what happened. You're looking at um, inequities when it comes to who has, you know, who has access. Access is going to be a big thing. Who had access to Wi-Fi? Who had access to extra money? Who had access to vaccines? Who had mm-hmm. access to like all these things, right? So that's the overarching, overarching, overarching thing of access. So your research, your stuff, access. DI, diversity, equity, inclusion, healthcare, all of it is access. That's the core. Mm-hmm. Um, I think too, you know, we really are focused on um there's something it's political a little bit, but I'm thinking about communities, but also the division. Like you see how maybe it comes back to access a little bit, the haves and the have nots, but the division that comes with that. There's a there's like this construct, there's this thing of how do you even navigate that when it comes to communication, um, it comes to policies and you know and, and and so much more. Like, you know, these are these are the things and you just know it's gonna bubble up. And so mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about. I mean maybe maybe that's just an exercise for someone, but I'm just telling you whatever it is that people do, you cannot ignore that anymore. You cannot ignore diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm not even saying that everyone has to do that work, but the fact that it caused such a wave, such a tremor in this country says something about the need for it. Right, right. It, it simply cannot be ignored, essentially. It's, it's so in your face now to the point where it's almost as if you're contributing to the problem by not addressing it, you're, you know, being part of the the process to address it. So with that being said, I think that this is a pretty good place to to leave it. This has been a great conversation for me. I've learned so much in having this dialogue with you. Thank you. Same here. This was fun. And you pulled out some stuff in me. So I just want to thank you for just being a really good interviewer because you had me thinking about my life and helping me think deeply about what's next and you know, what's, what's going on. So I appreciated it so much. Thank you. That's it for us this week. We hope that you guys enjoyed the episode. A quick note regarding me is that I recently finished my master's in applied data science at USC, which was a very interesting experience in my life. And now that it's over, I will be looking forward to figuring out how to continue my academic journey in a way that will be beneficial for me. And I will be looking forward to sharing my thoughts on this with you guys sometime in the near future. With that being said, 
Thank you so much for supporting this show. We have some really cool things on the horizon for you guys. So be sure that you're following us on our social media pages for those updates. Until next time.